Hello everybody and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold and I remember getting emails for the first time in Ooh. college. Were you at AOL? No, I was uh, ups.edu. I used my college email address. That was my very first one. Sexy. Somebody said, you should also set one up on the internet. I said, why? I have a college email address. They said, are you going to be in college forever? I said, no. (laughs) So I set up a Hotmail address, which I still use to this day. Aw, yeah. (laughs) Basically, we're old. Um, So yeah, this is We've Got Mail. Uh, This is the podcast where you write in. And we read your emails and answer your questions and recommend movies or TV or something if you want that. Uh, we'll talk about what's going on in the industry, film history, anything you want, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 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 your show. And we read as many letters as we can. We can't get to all of them, but we try. Uh, you can email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And uh, that's basically that. Uh, write in. Mm-hmm. We might read it. Answer your letter <laughs> on the air. Yes, we will. All right. Anyway, let's get to that. There's no sense in dallying. Let's just get right to your letters. Here's a letter from James from London. Hello, James from London. Hi. Hello, London. Uh, Dear Messrs. Bibiani and Seibold. I love being a messer. Uh, Having just listened to your podcast on The Searchers, that's our latest episode of Episode Zero. Very recent um, email. I'd like to share my own encounters with the works of John Ford. Okay. Uh, You and I had posited on Episode Zero that... We've seen John Ford movies, but we don't know a lot about John Ford as a person. We don't know a lot about his character or sort of his presence in the Hollywood scene at the time. Yeah, when we spoke about the film, we know a lot about uh, uh, John Wayne, Mm. who was uh, very racist. Uh, (laughs) Like, you read his interviews, and they've gone viral recently as people rediscovered old interviews with John Wayne, where he just sounds terrible. They've gone viral, like, a couple times. Like, oh, John Wayne, he's really horrible. Yeah, I know, I was there. And then, like... Six years later, oh my god, I found these same interviews, like a new generation yeah, of Twitter users will find the same interviews. Oh my god, John Wayne was horrible. Well, I mean, listen, it's good that the that you know information sticks around. It's always funny when it becomes news all over yeah. again. But um, So yeah, we were able to discuss the film and its treatment of uh, racism in context with John Wayne's life. Mm. Not that that's the single most important thing about the film, but it's it does a, read... something we discussed. It, yeah. it reads like perhaps a commentary on John Wayne himself, and that's something worth discussing, but... We didn't particularly know a lot about John Ford as a person outside of his film, so let's talk about it. But uh, he said, I recently set myself a goal to watch a collection of RKO films on a streaming service. It included three John Ford movies. The first I've watched. I began with Fort Apache and She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, both with John Wayne, although the lead of the first one is Henry Fonda. It was Fonda's performance that really stood out to me. It was a fully fleshed out character with flaws and weaknesses that drive the plot. The third and final film was Wagon Master which looks so cheap and flimsy next to the others. The plot seems to be a few episodic occurrences, and the characters struck me as incredibly shallow and bland. Have you seen any of these? Actually, wait, so it was a... Fort Apache, she wore a yellow ribbon, and Wagon Master. I'm pretty sure I saw Fort Apache when I was a kid, but I don't remember it too well, but I haven't seen the others. Wagon Master sounds like a a game I played on, like, the Apple IIe. Yeah, it's educational, but it's supposed to be fun, but it's not fun. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You have died of dysentery. Um... (laughs) 
So I was stunned when I read up on the films afterwards and found that John Ford considered Ford Apache to be a work-for-hire potboiler and Wagon Master to be one of the films closest to achieving his vision. Wow. In your podcast, you acknowledge neither of you have depth of knowledge of the works of Ford, so I know you might not be able to comment directly on my confusion. But have you ever had your own experience of a filmmaker whose own views on their work are directly at odds with your own? James from London. Um, hmm. I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to see Wagon Master. Maybe I could get a little bit more uh, more in depth on someone like John Ford. Uh, immediately springing to mind is John Carpenter. Uh, John Carpenter. I remember seeing an interview with him, and I knew John Carpenter for films like Halloween and In the Mouth of Madness, and the, like these really well crafted. Uh, sometimes rather thoughtful, but usually just exciting to watch horror movies yeah. or something like Escape from L.A., which I'm like a, I, I hesitate to call it an action film because there's not a lot of action in it, but it's constructed like an action movie. Uh, and when I when I heard him say that he takes inspiration from westerns for yeah. all of his movies, all of his movies. Mm-hmm. That threw me for a loop a little bit. It's like Escape from New York. Okay, that is kind of a Western. Snake Plissken is sort of a a Clint Eastwood-type character. So I kind of see it there. But when he said, and yeah, I guess in, in the Mouth of Madness as well, was influenced by Westerns. I'm like, oh, I'm like throwing popcorn. Get that's, out of That's here. a stretch. He goes to a new town. That's as far as that one goes. <laughs> Where the children are haunted and there's vine monsters in the greenhouse, just like in Westerns. You know. But mostly I do agree. I, I think you look at everything from, like, vampires, ghosts of Mars. You said the Escape yeah. movies, Assault on Precinct 13. A lot of his movies are very Western. I would even argue if you're going for horror, uh, Prince of Darkness, because it takes place in an old mission, has an element uh, that's, of that. That's a stretch. I, think, I don't think so, because it's about the insidious nature of colonialism and religion and how it uh, mm. sort of brings evil yeah. into this new place. It's it's thin, but it's there. Well, there's, I think. Then, you know, there's yeah. also a giant thermos full of Nyquil in the basement, just, just like, like in Western. Hey, I didn't see. Uh, uh, she wore she, a yellow ribbon. Maybe she, it's in there. She wore a giant green thermos. <laughs> Make that movie, John Carpenter. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, and Westerns were not films, like, I'm, I'm only just now even watching some of these old Westerns. The Westerns I had seen at that time were a scant few far in, few and far between and movies I kind of disliked. So when he said, oh, I really love Westerns, I'm like, mm, I don't think you understand your own work, John Carpenter. Because mm-hmm. well, uh, I'm 21 and I'm smarter than you, fnerfner. I, I think that happens. I think also sometimes that a lot of directors are really harsh on their own early work. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, uh, I recall um, uh, David Lynch. Okay. His third feature film was Dune. Yeah, Dune is um, was a messy production. It's a confusing film. It's also kind of amazing. <laughs> like it's gorgeously like conceived and photographed. The production design is really absorbing and fantastic. And there aren't other films that look like it either. No, no it's yeah. so unique and its own thing. And I just feel like he's way too hard on it. Like it's mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it was a studio thing. It's not what he really wanted to do, but. Sometimes the really those things are really really amazing. Like David Fincher's Alien Three, it was his first film. It was a work for hire kind of gig. He was seen as this new young up and comer who might like have this awesome creative vision. And they were it, re- rewriting the script while they were shooting. Yeah, it was, yeah the, it was... the production was undeniably rushed. We can all agree with on that. And yet, 
the movie's fascinating. The movie mm. is grim and daring and actually has some thoughts in its head. Um, I remember uh, Manolo Dargis once uh, wrote about it as an allegory uh, for the uh, various epidemics of the 80s and 90s, especially uh, AIDS. Mm. Um, and um, it, it's not a bad movie. It's clearly not what he wanted to do, and I'm sure he feels as though he's grown as a filmmaker, and I think he has, but it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and he's never come, like he said, he's disowned it, but he's never like commented on it extensively. David yeah. Fincher. Uh, I do know if you pay attention to fight club, uh, there's a scene, uh, like a brief scene in fight club where we get to see all of the, the characters just sort of engaging in anarchy throughout town and they're smashing stuff. And there's a shot where they're taking magnets to the videotapes at a blockbuster video and just erasing them all with the magnets. Yeah. And if you pay attention, there's an end cap of nothing but Alien 3 that they're erasing. There you go. And I think that's, like, the only commentary he's ever given. If you ever read uh, Hitchcock Truffaut, which is a little fawning, but very, very fascinating. It's just this long book of interviews between uh, Francois Truffaut and Alfred Hitchcock. We're kind of interviewing each other. Yeah, yeah. but mostly we're interviewing Hitchcock because Truffaut is a huge fan. And... He gets Hitchcock to talk about most of the films, at least the major films in his filmography. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was late in his career. He hadn't made a few things yet, but get most of his career in one book. And he's very frank about what he thought thinks worked and didn't work. Mm-hmm. Hitchcock could be very, very hard on his own work. If memory serves, uh, Hitchcock said that he thought Rope was a failed experiment. Okay. It's it, not. It, work, it works fine. <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. What, what failed about it. I mean, maybe he didn't make the because if you remember, Rope. Rope was, um, I think, it was his first color film. Um, but uh, it's a film about uh, two young college students who decide to kill one of their friends and then kind, throw kind him of, in a chest and have a like, dinner party. It's like an intellectual thrill. Like, yeah. can can we get away with murder? How would that make us feel? Yeah, it's it's loose, no morality anymore. It's yeah. loosely inspired on the Leopold and Loeb murders, and the idea is if we intellectualize morality and ethics can we talk ourselves into doing something mm-hmm. that's conventionally evil and can we be in smart enough not to feel guilty and the answer is no uh <laughs> but uh it's but the the idea behind the movie is they throw him in a chest and then they put a, a, a like a, a tablecloth on it and then they serve dinner to all of the dude's friends <laughs> on his course it's so morbid it's mm-hmm. great and it's really suspenseful and creepy and farley granger is just like freaking out and like he's about to like lose his shit at any given moment i'll, I'll say this you know what rope didn't need jimmy stewart like you don't the, think he needed him at all hero i don't think they they need i don't think he's a hero though well, he, he's, he's, look, he's Jimmy Stewart. He's the protagonist. He's the big star. He's the get for the film. Yeah. And he's also there to sort of provide a moral counterpoint to Leopold and Loeb. But the irony is that not, he's... Well, yeah, no. not the Leopold and Loeb standards. Yeah, but the irony is that he's the one who inspired them to do that, and he's the one who learns that rhetoric mm. has consequences. Yeah. Like, yeah, okay, you can say whatever you want, but that doesn't mean that won't lead to bad things happening and that telling people terrible things won't lead to terrible things in the future and we have a moral responsibility. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a good, complicated film. I suspect that if Hitchcock's... I'm trying to remember... I read that book, but it's been a while. I suspect if Hitchcock thinks it doesn't work, he probably either agrees with you and thinks it gets a little ham-fisted at the end, mm-hmm. or that um, the other game, uh, gimmick with Rope, because it's based on a play and it all takes place in like one apartment... It's all filmed as though it was one continuous shot. Mm. However, at the time, cameras couldn't hold enough film to do an entire movie in one shot. So they could only go about 15 minutes at a time. 
and they had to hide the cuts well, by shit, having someone like someone's jacket. Yeah, or like someone walks in front of the camera yeah. for a little too long. It's a dark screen, and you hide the cut. That's not as seamless as I'm sure Hitchcock would have wanted it to be. Mm. But Rope is amazing. Rope is a great motion picture, and he was hard on others of his films as well. But Rope is one yeah. example I remember thinking um, that he was too hard on. Yeah. Um, um, James Whale also uh, late in his life, and this is dramatized in the movie Gods and Monsters. Mm. Uh, t- kind of talked down his monster movies. Mm. He he, like he made Frankenstein, he made Bride of Frankenstein, he made The Invisible Man. And that's kind and, of what he's known for. Uh, yeah, now, and that's yeah. and that's what he's known for. And in in the film Gods and Monsters, and evidently this is true, uh, he kind of resented that all of like the horror hounds and fans of Frankenstein were the ones who were always constantly coming to him to interview him. He's like, you know, I did other movies. My Showboat was a huge yeah, hit. He, like, he, he did, he did, did a film version. He did a film version of Showboat, and uh, but yeah, it was only the horror stuff that he was remembered for. And I think he started to resent that after a while. Mm. But I think that's true of a lot of people that have hits. Yeah. They, they don't want to be known for just the hits or one role or yeah. one song. I know well, uh, um, Arthur Conan Doyle, he actually grew to resent Sherlock Holmes because that was just supposed to be like a couple of stories. Mm. And they were so popular, he ended up be feeling obligated to write them for forever. He killed the character and the character was still so popular, he had to bring him back. <laughs> like he was annoyed by Misery it. must not die. Uh, but Sherlock Holmes is a great character. He did undeniably an mm. amazing creation. And it just wasn't where his heart was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you you hear this from uh, musical artists as well. Oh yeah, they have like big hits. It's like mm, we we don't play the hit anymore. We're, we're a little sick of it, aren't we? Yeah. yeah. Now you, you go to you go to see Rat in concert. They're gonna do round and round. Yeah. They know what they're known for. Yeah. They they they. they we have one job right now, and that's I got, to be Rat. I I saw Joan Jett in concert. She opened with uh, Bad Reputation. Yeah. And she closed with Bad Reputation as well. <laughs> Like, we know why we're here to see you, Joan Jett. And, of course, oh Joan God. Jett has no shortage of hits. She you know, uh, just did this two-hour show. I like, saw Pat Benatar in concert, like, seven years ago. Uh-huh. Holy shit, she was amazing. <laughs> and it was all hits. Like, it was yeah. all, like, I, mean, I never and actually... Again, Pat Benatar has enough hits. I didn't even realize how many hits Pat Benatar mm-hmm. had. Like, I was like, oh, my God. She's the best. <laughs> like, yeah. holy shit. Um, anyway, we're getting off track. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of filmmakers who are too hard on themselves or have a perspective on their own films that we don't necessarily agree with. Like George Lucas, for example, he prefers the special editions. A lot of us don't. Mm. A lot of people grew up with them now. They've been around longer than the original editions have. That's true. Which is a weird thing to think. But um, well, th- that is... No, I guess the original editions are gone now, aren't they? Yeah, they I mean, like, they, they ended up releasing the original uncut re- uh, editions after a lot of fan outcry on one DVD set, but they were transfers of the laser discs, so yeah. they weren't anamorphic, meaning they weren't like they wouldn't automatically fit like a widescreen TV, mm. and um, and the the transfer was okay at best. Okay, I'm glad we had that, <laughs> but like that was it. And um, but yeah, George Lucas is fine with that. I wish the other one was still available. I prefer mm. it the other way, but whatever. I'm stuck with it now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, sometimes we disagree. Let's move on. That's a great question, uh, though. Here's a letter from B. Peterson. B. Peterson writes in uh, frequently, so yes. I'd like to read some of B. Peterson's Very letters. Very grateful to B. Peterson. Um, Dear Bibbs and Whitney, while catching up on 2020 releases around two or three daily, oh my, quite a chore, uh, I've been forced to confront something. 
I don't really like horror films. Oh, no. <laughs> now, there are obvious exceptions. Get Out, Hereditary, Funny Games, Perfect Blue, The Shining, Eraserhead, and Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. It's quite a few exceptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, in each of these cases, there's something else integral to the film that makes it appeal to me. Get Out has social commentary. Hereditary has Tony Collette's performance. Funny Games has self-awareness. Perfect Blue has its warping of reality. The Shining has Stanley Kubrick's style. And Eraserhead and Twin Peaks have David Lynch being David Lynch. So they're ambitious, is yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. They, they have a sort of an auteur stamp, each of those. Yeah. Uh, by and large, uh, even if I can recognize stuff like Color Out of Space or A Quiet Place or Don't Breathe as good or really good or even great pieces of cinema, I can't bring myself to like them. And so when facing the ever-mounting watch list, I avert my eyes from the horror entries, even though it's possible that amazing films lie in wait there. Is that okay? And is there a point where it could be okay to let yourself set a genre or type of film aside professionally? Uh, thank you. See you in the mm. next one, B. Peterson. That's an interesting question because there's two layers to that question. Mm. Uh, one is, is it okay to just, you've, you've given something a chance and just say, it's not for me. I'm not going to seek it out. Mm-hmm. The answer to that, of course, is yes. You don't, you're not obligated to see everything. That's not a requirement. In fact, Every, you're not obligated to see anything. That's true. However, the second part of that question is, is that okay professionally? Mm-hmm. And that's where you get into murky territory because as professionals, if you talk about movies for a living, if you review movies for a living, and there's a big chunk of cinema that you're not only, like, not necessarily a fan of, but just are kind of actively disinterested in. Mm. Two things are happening. Either one, you're not giving yourself a complete view of the landscape. You know, the pop culture landscape, the artistic landscape, the cinematic landscape. But if, even if you just want to talk about practicalities, you're, you're re- reducing the amount of stuff you can talk and write about. Mm. And that is maybe not in your best interest as a career move. But even so, yeah, you don't have to watch everything. But I think it's healthy uh, to uh, be interested. Or at the very... I actually learned uh, an important lesson watching food critics. Ah. Because everybody has, like presumably a favorite food or just foods they enjoy mm-hmm. eating or just flavors they tend to be drawn to no matter where, where you are or what you eat. But if you're a food critic, you have to be able to sit down uh, and a, in front of a plate of something that you might not necessarily have liked growing up. Yeah, or if you've never craved. You yeah, know, yeah. And understand that there are a lot more complex p- flavor profiles yeah. in whatever food is in, put in front of you. Maybe you've never heard of this, but you have to approach it all with an open mind. Yeah. And that's something you have to do as a critic as well. You have to expand your palate mm-hmm. to as the a, point that, a, that, you can a, that you can appreciate things that might not necessarily be... Mm-hmm something that you seek out outside of a professional environment. What what is, what is the flavor here? What kind of pleasure can it bring me? Even if it's not necessarily a food you like. And if, and if we go with that analogy, um, I actually have a very bland palate, uh, (laughs) in terms of food. I find spicy foods Mm. overpowering. Mm. So especially like when there's heat involved, like jalapeno or something like that. Like I know, like I know people who can like wolf down an entire bag of like jalapeno Cheetos Mm. and I get a whiff of that and I gag because (laughs) it's just too spicy for me. All right. There's not much I can do about that. I can try. I've tried to because acquire a taste. It just takes some trying. You you can acquire a taste. Mm. And I have indeed because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm married to someone who likes spicy foods and likes to cook spicy foods. I've been trying to expand that slowly and have a little bit more spice, try a few more things, try spicy foods in a different way, and it has helped. But on some point, my tongue can only handle so much. <laughs> so 
but I think that's a little different than when you're just interpreting art and stories, because I think when you look at various different uh, genres, for example, we'll just leave it there, because um, there's a whole bunch of other things you might not be into in regards to certain films, but when we're looking at genre, mm-hmm. you don't have to look at every genre the way that everyone else does. You don't have to look for the same things that everyone else does. You don't have to appreciate slasher movies the way that slasher fans do. You don't Mm. have to appreciate rom-coms the way that the target demo for that does. But you should, I think it behooves us as critics, again, professionally, to try to figure out what other people dig about it and try to understand that. And also to try to understand if there is indeed a smaller cross-section of things within the genre that we dig, Mm why it is that we prefer those and whether the things that we don't dig are in our estimation uh bad because Mm -hmm. we're critics we're allowed to say this doesn't work or whether it's just a matter of taste and if that taste can evolve sometimes it takes a gateway yeah you see a certain film and you realize oh oh i understand i don't know i'm trying to think i understand giallo now yeah, yeah, like I, I tried watching a few. Uh, Jallo is I mentioned it many times. It's a, mm-hmm. a subgenre of horror. It's an Italian mostly. Um, it's a combination of like gruesome serial killer stuff and de- uh, detective stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a big mystery as to who the killer is, and the killer is off doing especially gruesome and theatrical kills. They're, they're slasher adjacent genre. Yeah, yeah. Um, they predate slashers, actually, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, are, are largely responsible for inspiring what we now know of as a slasher. In fact, I've actually argued that Scream is more of a giallo than it is a slasher, for example. Um, but uh, if you just pick some of those randomly, you might not understand the appeal of the giallo. However, if you find the right gateway, and the movie I usually recommend is Dario Argento's first film, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, because it kind of rides that line between giallo and sort of an American Hitchcockian thriller. Mm-hmm. And then once you go from that to something like Deep Red yeah. or Four Flies in Grey Velvet or something, you, it just sort of, you just kind of see the process or here's this thing I like, here's this thing I thought I didn't like, and here's the connective tissue in this film. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be really, really useful. Um, so it sounds, uh, B. Peterson, that uh, you, you do like a lot of horror movies, but you like the ones with a lot of like psychological ambition. Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff you said you weren't fond of, like A Quiet Place, those are more like technical exercises. You know, like yeah. Quiet Places. Uh, I like Quiet Place, but it's basically just, can we pull this off? Mm-hmm. And I think horror is a place for a lot of that experimentation. So if you maybe look at that as something like a sort of experimental cinema, you maybe you'll appreciate it more than mm-hmm. you would as a story, because as a story, it's really thin. It works, it's, but it's really thin. Yeah, and here, here's something else um, I've, I've been sort of kicking around in my brain. Uh, you know, streaming services like Shutter are available right now, but I feel like the the main audience for Shutter are you know people our age, people who remember sort of the 1980s heyday, the boom of like slashers and horror movies that that occurred in that decade, uh, and I feel like when that boom was happening, and the subsequ- subsequently like when we kind of turned irony on it with films like Scream it was a lot hipper to be a little bit more of a pop nihilist pop nihilism, Mm. this sort of general feeling that 
we don't really care. There's a lot of apathy. There's mm. a lot of disgust with uh, the, the general pop milieu. So whatever, basically. Yeah, yeah, both, the, kind, yeah. the kind of whatever philosophy. And I feel like that was being carried over into horror filmmaking. In fact, I think that's what motivated a lot of horror filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Human lives don't really matter. Let's just kill everybody well, and I, take, get a little I, bit of a thrill. I think that's it. more. I think that, I think that's when it becomes cynicism. Yeah, but yeah. Well, just there, there's nothing really to root for here. Yeah. So we're just gonna root for the killer. You know, Freddie and Jason are the heroes of their stories. I think that's more of a product of uh, making the story so long. And mm. when you have, like, in, in Freddie's case, I think there are eight films in the series. Not kind of, well, nine if you count the remake. And uh, with Jason, kind of the remake, there's 12. Mm. There's only a couple of those movies where the actual protagonists last for more than one film. Yeah. Like in all of their franchises, there's only like a couple of protagonists who stick around for more than one film. And it's usually not more than two. Yeah. I think Heather Langenkamp is like the only exception, but only kind of because she plays herself in her third entry. <laughs> so you don't get that. Cons- oh, and the, uh, what's his name? Uh, Tommy Jarvis. Tommy Jarvis shows up in three of these, yeah. I guess. Or, uh, so th- two exceptions where you get to three, but that's still only a small fraction of the number we, of films. Yeah, we don't. And we don't refer to those movies as the Tommy Jarvis movies. Some people refer to it as Tommy Jarvis trilogy, like those three. I've heard that called. Maybe uh, in sort of uh, when you're delving, but those are known as Jason movies. Generally speaking, they're Jason movies. movies. Exactly. So they're the only consistent link. Mm. So when you go to see these movies, you're not going to see the protagonist. You're going to see Freddy Krueger because that's the only constant. And we're going to see them do what they do. And yep. what are they? These are serial killers. Yeah. They commit acts of violence on young people. So I feel... And so we're here to see people getting murdered. Exactly. So I think the longer these franchises keep going, mm. that that's one of the things that Wes Craven talked about in New Nightmare is the idea that as we kept making more and more Freddy movies, he just doesn't have that power because mm. after a while... He becomes our focus. He becomes our point. Of, he becomes our like our relationship. Like well, we're he, relate. We have. We're, we're, he was we have arguing in, in New Nightmare. He was arguing that Freddy became not because we have a relationship, but because uh, he's not scary anymore. Well, and I'm arguing yeah. that that's why he's not scary right. anymore because he's so familiar. Mm. He doesn't feel like this creepy thing outside of us. He's become mm. a franchise icon. He's become something that sells tickets, and that's not scary, is it? I mean, it's kind of scary from a capitalistic perspective, but <laughs> from for the movie's perspective, it's yeah. not. He becomes so familiar that he becomes fun to hang out with, which is mm. ridiculous. He's a monster, literally. So I've lost my point. I lost my train of thought here. Yeah. I guess I'm, I guess my point is this like the villains uh-huh. become our focus simply because we spend more mm. time with them than anyone else. Yeah, but why do we why do we keep going back to them though? Because we, we like the we like the villains. Mm. We like them to to witness them commit act of villainy. Yeah. There's something inside of us that wants to see villainy. There's something inside of us that wants to see those um, meaningless teenagers just get rent and, and bleed and feel pain and suffer. I, and I think, and that, I think yeah. that a lot of the horror genre, mm. generally speaking, uh, appeals to a certain kind of dark nihilism within us. Well, think about that how... we want to see all of that violence. I, and I, I yeah. feel like a new generation has come along that A, wasn't weaned on that kind of nihilism and isn't living in a world of nihilism. Mm-hmm. You look at... Uh, I mean, I, I hate to be this reductive, but, you know, I think this is sort of a, a big separator between uh, millennials and Gen X, uh, where... There are I generational differences. It's the, the fair to But yeah. I, I feel like uh, we're living in a, t- a generation that is putting a lot more focus on things like empathy and mm. compassion. Yeah. And there's no place for slasher movies or even really horror in there. So when it comes out where somebody watches a slasher movie 
and they say, wow, this is really dark. And it's, and they see interviews with the filmmakers and the filmmakers are brash dicks who don't give, don't care about human life. It doesn't really match with the current operational ethos of a lot of younger audiences. No, I think you got a really good point here. Mm -hmm. I think, um, and again, it's a generational perspective. Um, I'm, I think I'm technically a millennial, but barely. But so I, my point is like, I, I don't know what it was like to grow up only knowing the internet, for example. Yeah. Or, oh, I didn't grow up after Scream came out. Like, I so I've, I've got I, a longer I said, view. I set up my first email when I was in college. So. Yeah. So I don't necessarily have the perspective of some of the people listening to this podcast. I understand and respect that. But it seems to me that the younger generation has been told for a long time that like if society is going to survive you're going to have to fix it because old people are doing nothing about the environment yeah like nothing nothing <laughs> about a lot of institutional problems and we're all just kind of waiting for them to like step aside so that young people come in and fix everything which is what we all really really want so it seems like there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of activism and i think that desire for a better future makes mm. that kind of nihilism that we grew up with a little less appealing. It can be fun and refreshing sometimes, mm. but when we think about a lot of the films that are really connecting, not just doing well, but like really connecting mm. with people today, you look at the A24 stuff, for example, you look at Midsommar, yeah. you look at Hereditary, you look at Get Out, which wasn't A24, but you know what I mean? Like these kinds yeah. of high concept, really emotionally charged, intimate. Incredibly stylish. Too. Yeah, these yeah. intimate horror movies, they're not about how fun murder is. They're about connecting people on a human level. It's about trying to connect to a younger generation who is defined by empathy mm. and hope and trying to say, what is scary to that generation? Being cruel to one another mm. and the possibility of hopelessness. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why Jordan Peele's films work. That's one of the reasons why Ari Aster's mm. films work. Um, There's I, also it's also the reason why we don't talk about the torture movies anymore. Yeah, Shudder isn't celebrating. Wow, look, we got captivity. You know, that's not something that <laughs> that's, yeah. that's not something they're celebrating. They're talking about sort of things from older generations. Look, we we have all you know Hellraiser two and Tetsuo the Iron Man and these like cult holidays. Yeah, uh, the torture movies were kind of where nihilism bottomed out. Yeah, it's like that. Those those were too. I I was raised on those slashers and those are darkly nihilistic, cynical movies. It got way too dark for me in the early yeah. 2000s. The only, it was just torture and pain and nothing else. The only, and this is a term that most people who make these movies really, really hate. The mm. only quote-unquote torture porn movie mm. uh, franchise that I think is probably got legs is mm. Saw. Because Saw wasn't so much about the torture porn specifically as it was about the ingenuity of the filmmaking. Yeah. yeah. It, was the, it was the Rube Goldberg device uh, sort cool. of kill machines and also the possibility that you could get out of it. It wasn't just about mm. killing you. The idea is the killer wants you to escape. He's just going to make it really, really hard. But and you have to conquer your own personal demons in order to do it. That was that's, a plot point in one of the later sequels where yeah. the, they started finding traps that were not designed to be escaped. And they realized, wait a minute, this isn't Jigsaw. Yeah, so, this is yeah. somebody else with the same resources which, doing which, copycat which, stuff. Which was yeah. a neat twist. Uh, Saw is a very inventive uh, yeah. franchise. I, I'm actually bummed that we have to wait so long for the next one because it looked like mm -hmm. the next one was going to do something a little different while still keeping in touch with what made the franchise work, but I don't know, maybe it would suck. Mm. But uh, in any case, if any one of those torture porn franchises has legs into the future, I'll bet it's saw just because it's based off of more than just pain. It's based off of cleverness. Uh, there's cleverness. And I think it's uh, uh, just by dint of its sure persistence. Yeah. 
Uh, it's a, it's the were, franchise has value now. People know the name. Were, it's always going to appeal to somebody. There were seven seven films in the original run of the series, one every year for seven years. And then there was Jigsaw, um, which came out a few years later, yeah, which, which was which not good. Looked like it was going to be a, a reboot, but it turns out it was just another sequel. <laughs> yeah, not a very good one. There's one really gross kill in it, like one mm. kill in it. Where I'm just like, oh Jesus, oh God. I mean, awesome, but oh, <laughs> oh, that's so gross. Remember when Jigsaw created like a rocket train with a th- like a, a <laughs> 10 foot knife on the front? Okay, of it? that was a dream. That one was a dream sequence. That one doesn't count. It was, and it was pretty spectacular. It was awesome, but it did not count. <laughs> it's like something Wiley Coyote would have made. All right, and we got to move on. Beavers, and thank you for that letter. Um, I, again, that's a conversation about like in terms of like, when have you given something an ample opportunity to impress mm-hmm. you and you just decide mm-hmm. to bow out of it? If you're not a professional, you can do that at any time. That's totally, totally fair mm-hmm. as long as I think you're not being overly reductive and saying, this is bad. It's like, no, it might just not be for you. Yeah. As a professional, as a critic, I think it behooves us to at least try to figure out what other people like about it so that we can speak about it without being like, you know, or, r- ignorant or condescending about it. Mm-hmm. But th- you're still not required to like it. You just need well, to be able to explain why you don't. Yeah, and uh, and if you feel like you have the handle on something, fine. You have yeah. a handle on it if you if you understand it. Uh, uh, yeah, dip back in if something piques your interest, or if maybe yeah. it's particularly popular and you're curious about it. Those that's, yeah. that's all always okay. As viewers, you're permitted. Yeah, uh, yeah. As professionals, we're not. Uh, especially yeah. if if you're in that uh, rarefied position where an editor is giving you assignments. Yeah, you just sort of take the job in front it, of you. It helps to be able to cover anything mm. as intelligently as possible, so that you yeah. can take more assignments. Mm. So. All right, let's move on. Here's a letter from Adelaide. Hello, Adelaide. Hi, Adelaide. Um, hello, Bibbs and Whitney. As someone who sees themselves as having a future in podcasting oh, cool. or a hosting stratosphere, I find booking guests to be a strange issue. Ooh, we get a little insider baseball mm. here. Uh, not only having a history in Schmodown content, but also trying to book other people in followings for uh, with followings for interviews, I find myself questioning the concept of relative celebrity. Wherein myself, a regular person with not much of a fan base to speak of, feels intimidated to talk to and to meet people who have followings despite being the Robert Downey Jr.'s or Kylie Jenner's of the world. Not being the Robert Downey Jr.'s or Kylie Jenner's of the world. Right. Uh, My question for you both, having interviewed veritable celebrities and both having had guest spots on multiple podcasts, what are your thoughts on this idea? Do you find yourself intimidated or fearful when booking guests, quote, above your relative celebrity? And is there any underlying anxiety when talking to people you've looked up to for years? Sincerely, Adelaide. Uh, uh, I well, get anxiety wait. talking to people who are supposedly my peers mm. or who other people might consider to be not. I, I Just people I admire. And, and, yeah. and I don't care about their level of celebrity. Yeah, that's not really my um, big concern. I mean, yeah, some people are so famous. Mm. My general thought is this, and is uh, if they're so famous that they're not going to talk to me, it's not going to talk to me. Yeah. That's basically it. Well, when uh, you and I have both done interviews for various websites and mm. we've talked to uh, you know, Academy Award winners and big movie stars and uh, the way those press junkets, those interviews are set up, you either get 10 minutes on the telephone. Sometimes you get three minutes in person. Sometimes, often, often if that's on video. Sometimes you get one question on a red carpet. Oh, like I don't nothing. I, I can't it's, do that anymore. That's yeah. a waste of time. And they're always and, uh, bullshit questions, too. Yeah. Everyone's always asking terrible like, stuff. Like, who did you ask about Tron? I loved your oh, Tron <laughs> questions. <laughs> I, was at a, I was at Comic-Con, and we were doing a press line mm. uh, for a, Tron Legacy a when pre- that came out. A press line, mind yeah. you. Okay, <laughs> so basically, we, 
we've all seen red carpets, even if you've never actually been on one. You've seen them in like Entertainment Tonight or whatever, where, mm. okay, there's a big movie release. It's the first showing of the film to the public. The stars walk down this carpet. The carpet is coincidentally red. And uh, their people take pictures. And then people, they walk in front of various uh, entertainment outlets you know, your entertainment weeklies mm. or your colliders or whatever. And people hoist a microphone up in front of them and they have time for maybe two or three questions. If they're lucky, one is more common, especially if you're not entertainment tonight. Um, and uh, that's it. And if you don't get anything you can use, you didn't get anything and you kind of wasted your time. So it behooves you, I think, to ask interesting questions. Mm. However, the vast majority of the people ask the same stuff yeah. anyone what can get. What was it like working with? No. Yeah. What was it like working with is one of the worst questions. Because uh. um, people, not because it's a bad question, it's a perfectly valid question, just because everyone's asked it before. Them, yeah. Well, also you're not asking about them, but mm. also everyone's already asked that question. Mm. So that's something I, I concern myself with. But a, a press line is like a red carpet, except the celebrities aren't going anywhere. So basically, at Comic Con in particular, what they would do is they would get a big like ballroom in like a hotel, and they would just put up a backdrop so people can take pictures of the celebrities, mm -hmm. and then they just put all the press in a line, and the celebrities walk down the line. Usually, the bigger outlets come first, so they get more time, and then the smaller outlets are towards the end of the line, and you get less time, and sometimes you have to share time, and that sucks because then you're not getting anything exclusive. Um, I did one of these for Tron Legacy when Tron Legacy came out. And it was actually like a pretty cool setup. Like they had like Flynn's Arcade like set up in a building. I, I remember. I was at that comic. That was cool. And then the in the back and, and then in the back room of Flynn's Arcade, they had like a big neon light room. Hmm. It was neat. I'll give them credit. That was neat. But the press line was so long and we were way at the back of it that we didn't get any time. Like, mm. and so literally we were told you get one question mm. and I was so frustrated cause I'd been there for like an hour and a half or two hours and I only get one question with the director of Tron legacy. Mm. So I, and this is immature. I shouldn't have done this, but what I said, no, you should have I got, because it's meaningless at that point. I, do I, whatever you want. I, what I asked him was, have you seen Tron? <laughs> <laughs> and I had time for a follow up. So I said, what's your favorite Tron? <laughs> As though I didn't know what Tron was. Yeah. It was kind of funny, but it was just, look, you wasted my time. What am I supposed to do with this? Yeah, I, get, uh, I get a time for like 30 seconds. There's, there's nothing there's here. There's nothing I can get here. There's yeah, nothing there's, I can do. Sometimes you might get an interview with a celebrity, like a podcast, and you get to talk to them, like have a conversation yes. for like 30 minutes. And, or, or an hour. Or even an real, hour. We've yeah. been lucky enough to get some cool people for an hour. We, we got, that's been great. We had 30 minutes with uh, Kevin Hart and Ice Cube. That was a cool uh, one. They was, were nice. Was, yeah, was, they, they were yeah, yeah. very, very polite people in interview. Yeah. I got and, to um, spend like a whole hour with Don Coscarelli just talking about his yeah, whole career. God, yeah. that was a good one. Um, <laughs> but for the most part, um, it, it's it's just business. So yeah. if you're only going to have an interview with a big famous person for a little bit, treat it like business. Get to the end of the interview. Uh, try to make it seem as conversation as possible. Yeah, because like, you let, want people... Let questions lead from one into the other. Listen like, I, to what they're saying yeah. and ask follow-ups based on what they said because oftentimes they're just going through emotion trying to... A lot of times actors and filmmakers are given kind of answers to give to stock questions. Or they've been asked 30 times that day by other reporters. So, so their answers are a little robotic and so it behooves you as an interviewer to try to find some way mm. sort of break them out of that. Come at things from a different angle. Ask about something super specific that no one else might have honed in on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then once they start talking about that, ask them follow-ups based on the things that it sounds mm. like they haven't talked about yet. And then you'll get some interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. However, I, I think the big question here, though, is how do you get those interviews? Yeah, well, um, 
uh, yeah, we're talking about like getting getting interviews with big celebrities, and you and I don't facilitate that. That no. was always through whatever outlet we were doing it. Well, for. I, well, and I was actually like an editor at one of those outlets for a while, and usually how that goes is there's a movie coming out or a TV show coming out mm. or some other event and uh, you're on a press contact, list. Yeah, you contact publicists and yeah, stuff. Yeah, publicists contact you because they know your outlet and they've probably worked with you before if you've done this for a while. Mm. And they just say, hey, we have this movie coming out. Are you interested in talking with X, Y, and Z? And if you are, you say, yeah, I'd love to. And if you're not, you say, no, thank you. Mm. Uh, you know, you can only cover so much. Wouldn't it be great if we could cover everything? But we can't. Um, but uh, in order to get on that press list... Um, you have to, at the very least, know someone who's on that press list who can give you an email and just say, hey, here's the publicist for X, Y, and Z publicity firm. Yeah. Um, and so you can just, you get that email and just say, hi, my name is so-and-so. I write for so-and-so. I was trying to contact so-and-so for an interview. And they'll say yes or no. Just be very polite about it. Yeah. Just be, always be super polite. Always understand that they kind of hold all the cards. Mm. So you just be polite and you ask. And sometimes it doesn't work out. And you say, thank you. Can I try again sometime? And there you go. Um, when it comes to people that you don't have a publicity contact with, people who are sort of the lower level celebrities you can just find on Twitter, like for mm. example, most of the people at the Schmodown, yeah. you know, like you don't, we don't have publicists. You can just, mm. you're, if you if you're in the Schmodown, people, whatever that, you can just tweet us and say, hey, you want to be on our podcast? And I'll say, I would like to, but I don't have the time. Or maybe yes, if I do, you well, know. Um, and this this is something actually uh, some advice that Alonso Duralde gave me. Mm. Uh, if somebody approaches you and says, "Hey, I'm starting a podcast. Mm. Would you like to help me out?" Say yes, because if you, you can, yeah, you, you started out at some point, and now they're starting out too, and it it only helps you both. Yeah. Uh, there, there's no reason not to say yes in a lot of scenarios other than like a busy schedule. Yeah, but, um, I don't have the time right now. I'm doing a lot, mm-hmm. going on, lots going on with my family and I'm distracted. These things happen to everyone at every mm-hmm. level of celebrity, whether it's incredibly yeah, minor but, or really, really big. And that just happens. But mm-hmm. when it's possible, I'm sure most of the people at the Schmodown, for example, who are low level celebrities at most for the most part. Uh, I, I don't consider myself a celebrity. No, you're you're noteworthy. I think, would, and I oh, feel the God, same way about me. Like we 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 have podcasts. We've been another podcast. We're not like nobody, but we're only like one level. <laughs> like we're one tiny, incy, yeah. incy, weensy little step above nobody. So we're De, like, De Niro is a thousand. We're one eighth. Yeah, <laughs> like that's kind of where we're at right now. So, but like, if you want to connect to somebody, a always be super polite. Mm. Always be super polite. Never be pushy. Never be rude. Never be brash. Just be polite and be- say hi. I'm a f- if you if you've already met them in some regard, mm. if you have a connection, and go with that. I've done this for the Shmodan, or I've done this for so and so. I met you here once. Um, but if not, just say, hey, I'm a big fan, or I think you're really cool or interesting, and I've got this podcast. The podcast is set up like this. Would you be interested? Mm. The answer might be yes. Worst case scenario, the answer is no. Mm. And that happens. And it, it, that kind of rejection sucks and it makes you feel kind of bad. And we get that too. Whitney and I don't have a lot of guests on our podcast. And a lot of it is because Whitney and I have weird schedules and we don't like yeah. forcing other people to work around us. Well, and during the pandemic, there's an extra technical level because now we like Skype in where previously they would come yeah. over and record. Yeah. And them. we're getting better at that. But even so, scheduling can be really, really complicated for people in the industry. And we don't like relying on that. We like being able to, whenever we can get together for a couple of hours, we churn out podcasts. Mm-hmm. And that's something that Whitney and I live close enough to each other that we can do that like on the fly. Mm-hmm. Hey, you, you, you busy in 20 minutes? No? Cool. Let's do a podcast. We can do that. 
we can't do that with everybody. Mm. So we don't do a lot of guests on our podcast, as much as I would probably like to. Uh, but uh, in any case, yeah, we ask. Sometimes they say sure, but then things happen and we never get back to each other or their schedules get wonky or our schedules get wonky and it just kind of falls apart like a flan in a cupboard. Um, so, yeah. So when it comes down to asking people to be on your podcast, A, make sure you have a podcast. Like, I don't want people just randomly calling up everybody and like to just say hi. Like, you have a podcast. Cool. Mm-hmm. You're starting a podcast. Cool. Get that, get that done. It's actually pretty easy. You contact like Libsyn or Podbean or whatever you want to do it. Pick a name. Make sure it's not already taken. Mm. Make sure you have a decent... The only thing you can't really cheap out on is sound. Like, because your sound has to be good. It mm. needs to be like audible and sound okay. Sorry about the two podcasts you put out this week that didn't sound great, by the way. Um, that one's on me. Uh, but well, like, uh, when, when we can afford the $100,000 recording yeah, studio. You, then, but, yeah. you know, if, you, if you're going to spend money on anything, spend it on a decent microphone. And by decent, yeah. I mean like 120 bucks. <laughs> right. Yeah, like, yeah. Don't, you, don't go overboard. It's, no, you really This is don't. not hustle and flow. No, no, no. Like, if you make enough money or you have enough money, by all means, spend it. But, like, seriously, like, don't go with the cheapest microphone. You'll get what you pay for. But you don't need to go insane with it. Um, and then, um, yeah, start recording. I recommend... Uh, finding a co-host so that if you don't have a guest or if a guest falls through, you still have a show. So find someone you can talk to, find someone you feel comfortable with. I'm very, very lucky I found Whitney right off the bat when I started podcasting. So, oh, oh what are we, we've been talking nonstop for like a decade now. We still, <laughs> we still finding stuff it's, to talk about. It's, it's come January. It'll be a decade. We've been podcasting together. Ah, holy crap. Mm. Um, so anyway, uh, anyway, I hope that answers that answer your question. In any case, do I understand feeling self-conscious? Uh, I have a lot of social anxiety myself. Uh, so but yeah, just remember they're just people. They're yeah. not, they're not, yeah. if, if they're, they're decent, all just they're, people. they're not going to be you know, jerks about their celebrity. Oh, well, how, no. how dare you contact me out of the blue on Twitter? Yeah. I know a lot of people on Twitter, uh, especially women, are really self-conscious about people just sort of contacting them randomly. Well, that's not self-conscious. That's, that's being, being conscious being, of other people pr- pr- because people yeah, can be real jerks. Protective. So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, some some people are a little cagey about getting, like, direct messages from strangers. Some mm-hmm. people don't even allow it. Yeah. But, um, you know, just bring it up. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you... I'll- Always be if polite. You, if you get always a no, be professional. Yeah. If, and, you, yeah. if you get a no, don't don't be too persistent. I think it's okay if you write one letter and then write another letter, like maybe a few months later. Yeah. Or, or one month later, that hey, what about that? And if you don't hear either, they didn't get it, or uh-huh. they're, they're just not interested. They're just not interested. And, and, and pass. Yeah. 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 Don't be pushy. Mm. Be professional. Be super duper polite. Mm. And um, I, and I personally, I don't mind if you bug me. Just send me a personal message. Say hey, yeah. big big fan wanted to say hi. Hi. I might. I'm, I'll probably write back. Yeah. Um, I, I try to, um, I, again, I have a lot of social anxieties myself, so I, I apologize. I actually like sometimes find out that I've got messages from like a long time ago in like this hidden folder on yeah, social that, media. I hate that folder. That's happened, happened that to me a couple sucks, times. Like I found I, one. It's like, here's a, here's a very nice letter from somebody yeah, nice who was really cool. Or you get, you find like you discover new hate mail from like eight uh, reviews ago. It's uh, like, you, you're so awful. Oh, oh, I'm glad I found that. <laughs> Um, so yeah, anyway, again, just, uh, be polite, be professional, uh, don't overdo it. Mm. And, uh, if they say no, cool. And if they say yes, extra cool. Yeah. Even cooler. Yeah. And just respect their time. Make sure, uh, you've got everything set up in advance if you can. And, um, away you go. I look forward to, uh, listening to your podcast by all means, please 
like send us a link to the podcast when you've got some podcasts to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, Whitney and I, feel free to contact us if there's anything else we can do to help. And um, best of luck. Yeah. I, I, podcasting can be really, really fun. Um, and as you might have noticed, we, we haven't given up on it yet. Uh, so, yeah, mm-hmm. go for it. And we, we, the world, I know it seems like there's a ton of podcasts out there, but the world can always use more good stuff <laughs> of any kind. So go yeah. for it. There, there's so many out, out there. Why not start one? Yeah. yeah. Why not? So, it, it doesn't even but, need to be high content. It could just be your effervescent personality. Yeah. Yeah. That's all and it needs. Maybe one person and like halfway across the world will listen to it and have a good day. And that's reaching one person is satisfying. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, that's really really nice <laughs> to be able to reach out into the world and have someone sort of even, like even if they're really far away just sort of take your hand and go this got me through my commute yeah <laughs> that's all you can really hope for in a podcast i was sometimes. on a freeway in boston and i heard you and i'm not so unhappy it's like yeah. great that's it that's you know, victory pre- prevented a little misery in traffic which yeah. is the worst kind of misery <laughs> uh, i'm not sure that's strictly true <laughs> Let's move on. Right. Let's move on. But right. thank you for uh, that great letter. Yeah, here's a letter from Cecil. Hello, Cecil. Hi. Uh, hi, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. <laughs> what, what happened here? Uh, rock, rock, R-O-C-K, Meister, M-Y-S-T-E-R, McCool, M-C-K, McCall. And I can only think of Cull the Conqueror. So, uh, okay. Which is supposed to be Conan the Conqueror, if I recall. Uh, Cecil says, I left Facebook and Twitter, which is like being vegan. Because it's healthy, I have more energy, and I bring it up in every conversation. <laughs> Yeah. One of the many, many benefits from leaving the social internet is the fact that I was not having fun watching movies. I think the reason is because on Facebook especially, but also Twitter, it felt like I had to be in the conversation for every movie, and the excitement for a movie that was uh, was tied into being able to talk to it, talk about it online. Yeah. Oh, brother. It can. It uh, can. It can. Brother, feel I like, hear it you. It can feel like work, can it? Just expressing an opinion on a movie that's not one hundred percent positive can make you feel like a, a horrendous pariah on Twitter. Yeah. Um, now that I'm off social media, I've seen less movies, gotten more hobbies, and only see movies because I want to, which should be obvious, but isn't. <laughs> We're all part of our bubbles, I guess, Cecil. Uh, yeah. The, the most unfortunate thing about, we talked about this a little bit in previous podcasts, but the, the idea of being on social media is that now your life is performative. Uh, yeah, you have to have a brand and the brand, mm-hmm. the brand you isn't necessarily the real you, or maybe it is. Yeah. Maybe you've adjusted your life to match the brand that you want to sell online. It but, can be uh, hard to even tell where one ends and one begins yeah, after a yeah, while. Yeah. And, but the whole point is you go on these things and you have to make sure that not just your opinions, not just communicating with friends, but every element of what you feel and say now has to read a certain way. Right. Well, yeah, like, you're, again, I, I people think, will be reading this. Mm-hmm. You should probably make sure that and you're, it's readable and that you're actually, like, communicating what you want to communicate. That and it also, I feel like it needs to be part of a larger social tapestry now. Well, think, think uh, about, uh, like, it's not just, I like movies and I like talking about movies on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Now it's, quote, film Twitter, unquote. Yeah. And that's, yeah. like, a whole community. Well, fi- and that community Twitter, in itself just... is also very divisive. Well, and also just Twitter, the way the way you 
present as a human being mm. now needs to be carefully calibrated to match a certain kind of social strata. Uh-huh. Uh, you can't, which can and, evolve too sometimes, yeah, and so and, it'll change. And, and yeah, Twitter yeah. changes, and it takes you know a lot of Twitter usage and constant checking up on what a lot of people are saying to mm. understand the general tone of the Twitter verse. Sometimes I miss out occupy. on new words. Yeah, like I'll, I'll like I won't look at Twitter for like a day, and I'll come back, and I'm just like, there's new terminology that nobody told me about. I'm still not sure what on fleek means, and that's over. I think it's good. Yeah, it's, it's good to be on fleek is to be like. Yeah, I, I guess um, I don't know what a fleek is or why I, I want to be on it. But. I assume it's um, um, very pleasant. <laughs> I've heard I've I've never my, heard someone call anything on fleek with like a scowl on their face, mm. like you're on fleek. Like, I've never heard anyone say that. It's like, oh, that's on fleek. You're and on, I'm like neat. You're on fleek sounds like you're on suspension. It's like you're, that's it. Given your badge, you're on fleek. <laughs> there's that there's that show I just showed mm. you an episode of it on mm. uh, HBO Max called Close Enough. From the creator of Regular Show, and one of the episodes is about why it's fun getting old, mm. and uh, like, and they're talking about like, because like they they find out they, that they're old because they're like that is they're thirty five, they're thirty five, yeah. <laughs> so like, but they're being treated like they're old because there's they have a free night and they're staying in drinking tea and watching the Great British Bake Off. Mm. And someone's like, you're getting old. And they have to go to a club and they find out that clubs suck now because they just don't have the energy for it. And they find it kind of boring after a while. And they start, there's like a whole big drama. And actually they list things that make it okay to be old. Like mm. nobody expects you to keep up with new music. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of pressure that goes into something like that. There's and, a lot of pressure what, that goes into social media. And there, there's actually like figures on this. Somebody did a study. Yeah. Uh, I think it was Rolling Stone. And they, uh, they figured out that age 33 is when people typically stop paying attention to new music. Mm-hmm. Like, just deliberately. Yeah, it's just not their priority anymore. It's, it's you too got much, other stuff too much effort. Hey, it's yes. too much effort. You, you don't want to pay attention to it. And also, at that point, your musical tastes have pretty much... I don't want to say things like calcified or solidified. Yeah, you might discover you, new music and like it, but you know what you like. But the the point is, you you know what you like, and you've become a little bit more interested in like the broader arm of music history. Yeah. So you start going back and listening to the artists that influenced the artists you liked in your twenties, mm-hmm. and you start going back and listening to a lot older music, and you start finding. And it's also oh, it turns out I'm actually like really into early bluegrass because well, this is where a lot of things grew from. And you know, also like New Orleans of, jazz or something. A lot of the newer music is very specifically intense. Intentionally catering to very younger, mm. uh, younger people, teens, college people, that kind of thing, and they're just they're going through different stuff. Their lives are different mm. than where you are when you're 35. Yeah. So that's not really speaking to you the way it would if you were 10 years younger. Yeah. That's natural yeah. and that's fine. But uh, I think this whole idea that like a lot of pressure that people feel in order to express themselves in a specific way, and also to have a very specific opinion yeah. about popular thing yeah. uh, is all predicated by use of social media, isn't it? Yeah, there's, it feels you know, like there's a... You have to get in on it. and I, I feel There's like a wave and you have yeah. to surf it somehow, yeah. And yeah, we, we talk a lot about sort of the counterculture and how a, a lot of the uh, recent ethos seems to be uh, accepting everything into the main culture, whereas previously it was rejection of the main culture and yeah. st- deliberately staying outside of it. And... Uh, when you when you feed into the main culture enough, sometimes you just get sick of it. You don't want to necessarily ha- have the same opinions as everyone else. So yeah, you get off. You find your new hobbies. You find you find. I hate to sound corny about it, but you do find yourself a little bit. Yeah, I'm not anti-social media. Social media has a lot of really really wonderful things that has come out of it. But there's a downside to everything, isn't there? And for me, 
Uh, I recently took like a like a couple of weeks off of social media almost altogether. Like I posted new podcasts on the critically acclaimed Twitter, but like that was it. Mm. And it was great. Mm. It was really freeing because I had started really kind of living on social media, especially after the pandemic, um, because I didn't have as many options to socialize. Mm. And I found it intense and unpleasant a mm. lot of the times. I found myself doing something. I didn't know there was a name for it. It's called doom scrolling, where <laughs> you only pick up your phone to just see, oh, God, what happened now? I don't know, yeah, man. Like, like what? I got to check CNN. Like or you, you get your endorphin hit from yeah. misery now. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And it's like, that sucks. Like, I didn't want to do that. But I mm. found myself feeling compelled to yeah, just to like, be yeah. on top of the next bad thing that was happening. And so I finally, you know, I talked about with my therapist and my wife. And we were just like, I need to. I, I took social media off my phone. And it's still off my phone. Okay. I feel way more present. I'm able to enjoy moments and not constantly think about like just what other voices are saying right now. I can hear my own voice a little stronger. Mm. And yeah, I'm on social media a bit more now, but it's only when I happen to be in front of my computer. Yeah. Or when I'm intentionally going on social media to post something or check mm. on something or answer a message or something. So um, again, I'm not anti-social media, but I do believe that social media can be a big distraction. And it can turn things that are supposed to be fun into something that feels like an obligation. Well, and, and, and so, you, you yeah. also realize that, you know, all the stories you get about the world are just, like, quick takes. Little quibbies. Quick bites. Right, and that can yeah. be really useful and interesting. You get, like, this big, broad swath of input. However... For the vast majority of human history, our brains didn't have that much constant input. Mm. Like, we're not Johnny Five here. We actually need to, like... Now I'm old. <laughs> that was an old reference, wasn't it? That was some short circuit. Nobody's talked about that movie in 20 years. Um, but... Uh, you said Johnny Five, so that's specifically short circuit two. No, he sold himself Johnny Five in he, the first he, one. Uh, at the very end, he gave himself the name yeah. Johnny Five. It's just number five. But that's still his name. Oh, God. It's in, the, it's in there. <laughs> I'm calling let, it. Let me short circuit to shame you, please. <laughs> anyway, my point is this. It's important to be able to take a break from things. Mm. It's important to remember that social media, yeah, it's quote unquote real. People are contributing to it, but it's not where you are right now. Yeah. And I've learned a valuable lesson very recently yeah, about I'm, pulling back from that. Yeah, and you can you can go, like I, I had to stop myself from going down rabbit holes. It's yeah. like, I, uh, I, I made the mistake, but it was, I actually did this deliberately, partly just as an experiment. And partly as to see what a bad mistake I could make, but oh, no. uh, I, I I decided to follow like go down a QAnon hole. No, and go, like, don't way, do that. Way into like the weird conspiracy theories, like just to see how weird things got. Like uh, after like just thirty minutes, I had gone down some weird rat, like totally bizarre oh. ideas that I just never knew were out there in the world. It's so I feel bad that I know about those things now. Yeah, there's and some I wasn't even near stuff. scraping through the surface of that stuff. Yeah, like, it, I, the whole QAnon thing freaks me the hell yeah. out. Like I and now like people are running for politics who actually like like believe have, in yeah, that yeah, stuff. Like QAnon and, on their uniforms oh and stuff. My God. Yeah, it's the, the QAnon stuff. Oh no, it, it's fun oh. until you realize that like how how much it's infiltrated the real world. Oh, it's so creepy. It's not like the reptilians, you know. Oh, that's fun. There's reptile people infiltrating everything. Yeah, we can all that, we can all have fun with that because mm. what's like? Oh, reptile people are controlling everything, so everything's the same. But there are reptile people. Cool. Yeah, that'd be bad. <laughs> I want to meet one of those reptiles. That, that sounds kind of neat. Let's you, go. You want to get that. in with reptiles? No, I just want to say hi, reptile person. Yeah, I'm going to go back reptile to business Reptile person. Now. That sounds great. They probably have a very different perspective on things. <laughs> like I really want to know. I, I want to know about their history, their culture. 
what what plays have reptile people written? Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> what music do they listen to? Okay, I think Wait. we got time for about maybe one or two more letters. Right, well, let's do let's do two more. Here's a letter from Tomas. Hello, Tomas. Hi, Tomas. Uh, hello, Mr. Beast and Mr. MacHool with three O's. Love it. Um, I have a letter that may rub some people the wrong way. Uh-oh. Okay, well, this, this is your letter. Uh, in, in the last few weeks, there's been an ongoing effort. Uh, that effort is that only a disabled actor should play a disabled person, and only a trans actor should play a trans person. I don't agree with this, and here is why. Uh, let me start by saying that there should definitely be more acting work for underrepresented people. Yes. Uh, but I would say that a trans actor should be able to play a non-trans person just as the other way around. In a lecture on free speech, Stephen Fry recently said, nowadays people want to be right rather than be effective. And that's what we have here in my opinion. Recently, there's been two movies in the works that were going to be about trans people. One was going to be played by Halle Berry and one that was going to be played by Scarlett Johansson. Uh, people came out of the woods screaming, no, only trans actors should play trans people. How dare you? The result was that two movies that would have been that would have highlighted the trans community never got made. The reason is because it's called show business. Some people have to pay for a movie, and some people who are poning up the cash want a big name to risk that money. Uh, people with the people with the pitchforks wanted to be right rather than be effective. If, if you look at a movie like Philadelphia, it's a great movie about gay people and the stigma of AIDS. I'd say that movie. Uh, made more for both the gay community and the demolishing of age stigmatization most more than most other movies. One of the reasons it could be made was because there were two big names attached to it, Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington. Antonio Banderas plays Tom Hanks' gay partner and lover. As far as I know, neither Tom Hanks nor Antonio Banderas are gay, but they played them convincingly because actors are portraying people other than themselves. When they encounter a situation where they lack experience, they do research and ask advisors. So today people want to be right, but in their efforts of being right, they fail to be effective. Just imagine, we could have had big movies about trans people, but now we won't have any. Thanks, Tomas. Um, okay. Th this is, uh, yeah, this is a bit of a fraught conversation. This is a big um, can of worms. And I want to make it clear uh, here that uh, Whitney and I are both mm. cisgender men. Mm. Uh, we're both uh, uh, white. And uh, one of us is heterosexual. And Whitney is bi. Yeah. Uh, so that's where we're coming from mm -hmm. here, and so our perspective may only Com go so comes, only comes from that perspective. Comes from that perspective, which is a limited perspective mm -hmm. in regards to this conversation. However, in regards to this very specific argument that oh no, these movies won't get made because Holly Berry won't be in them, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, no, they keep making them, and the other thing is oh no. They won't. We we can't make them without Holly Berry because uh, she's a big because, star. Well, Why aren't they, there any trans stars? Because they won't put them in movies. Yeah, it's it's. They won't a, put people in movies. They can't become stars. It's a self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, so we have to and break that cycle in order to I, let people become stars in the first place. The, what the studio has to do is, uh, I, I, you to use the studio's term, take a risk. And cast a, a trans performer. Yeah, take a risk with massive uh, air quotes yeah, here. Um, yeah. It's it's not a risk, just cast a, a yeah. trans performer. But uh, that's concerning. Like a lot of those movies are people, being sort yeah. of like for the Oscar bait audience in the mm. first place. So they're only ever expected to make so much money anyway. Yeah. And yeah, the idea that investors will only put in money if they get like a name star is maybe a habit that we need to try to break them of. Yeah, I think uh, I think when the whole s entire like entertainment system has to shut down hmm. for a few months, I'm hoping we can look at this whole thing where nobody's working and it's not just about maintaining status quo. We got to maintain the status quo. Hmm. The status quo is dead now. <laughs> we have pulled out the we have unplugged it and we're yeah. replugging it back in we can reboot it now mm. 
This is a great opportunity. I mean, this is horrible that it's happening, but we can make the most of it. This is a great opportunity to break up that paradigm and maybe instead of doing things that follow this kind of conventional quote-unquote wisdom, mm. many of which are based off of just perpetuating just bullshit yeah, yeah, and prejudice as well. Oh, no, well, we need these stars because they make money. Then make new stars. There's plenty of actors <laughs> out there. Um, yeah, I mean, like... Why not? Let's just do it. And yeah, we're going to like, there will, there will be like this, a, a shift in terms of how movies get made. There should be a shift in how movies yeah, get made. Yeah. So let's just do it. So yeah, the, the idea that these movies aren't going to get made, first of all, they pro- they may still be made. Uh, yeah. And the whole idea is if, because there's so little work for trans performers right now, mm-hmm. Why are we going to deny them that work? Uh, yeah, the, the I, role that is very specifically designed yeah, to be a trans, trans role. Performer and, why? Yeah, why? They, if we can't even give trans actors the roles that are written for trans people, mm-hmm. what roles can we hope for? I mean, like we're mm-hmm. we're doing everything. I'm sorry, studios are doing like everything that they can to keep people out of that process who could enlighten that process, who could bring something personal to that process. And instead of just like having all of these like celebrities talking about, yeah, well, once I did my research, I found out it's like, it's really, really hard. That's performative. It's it's That's, performative that, and and I'm you know what I'm glad they went through that journey and well, I and sure I, I guess and it's better I than not going through it. I completely it, but... understand why someone like Halle Berry or Scarlett Johansson would say yes to a project like that yeah. because they are performers, they're actors, and they're only thinking about their own craft, and so they see it as perhaps a challenge. Sure, they get to play a trans person, which they've never done before. Mm. Uh, you know, ask Hillary Swank about that. She played a trans person, sure, and uh, and quite well. She got an award for it. Many awards. Yeah. Uh, Should they have cast a trans actor? Yeah. Did that film also raise the profile of trans characters, which we had almost no films about at that time? Yes, it also did that. Yeah, it's complicated. Um, There's there's been a recent movement uh, just in the last couple of months uh, where uh, white actors, uh, white voice actors, uh, Mm. have started refusing to play characters of color. Yeah. and rightfully so. I yeah, think that's, that's great. That's because... a, the voice acting community is actually very mm. small. So mm. there's only so much work to go around. And yeah, yeah it, it's ridiculous. So the, the white actors will let uh, those roles open up uh, as new opportunities for performers of color mm-hmm. who have been denied those opportunities up until now because of just systemic racism within the system mm-hmm. is a positive thing. Well, it's also now, it's also it's also mm-hmm. um, like a, in a lot of shows, actors play multiple parts. Yeah, and yeah. they were just like, "Oh, we'll just have you play other mm-hmm. roles." Like, no, no, like not all of them. You yeah. can't and that, spread the and love around. There's enough money. Like, go yeah. around, hire more people. Well, and of course, that goes back to an old animation tradition where they didn't have a lot of money, and they would just yeah. hire one, like a one Mel Blanc, to play a whole pantheon of characters. Yeah, uh, and so a lot, of, a lot of voice actors have that talent. They can play a whole pantheon of characters. But mm-hmm. now we're being a little bit more sensitive to who's being hired and why. Um, I think a lot of people get a little bit up in arms over the the notion of in de, in, in denying representation. Mm. Uh, for instance, look at uh, the the character the I forgot the name of the actor, but he plays Cleveland on the Family Guy and also on the Cleveland Show. Oh yeah, I remember uh, that actor. The, the Family Guy, on Family Guy. Um, <laughs> uh, we have we already have representation in that show now. We have a black character. And young and young black people watching that show might look up to Cleveland, even though he's played by a white actor. 
we're not taking the representation away. Mm-hmm. We're just we're, making it we're, better. We're, we're making, yeah, we're actually giving more representation to the people behind the scenes who are making this. Yeah. It's uh, also, so I don't, I don't think by taking Halle Berry or Scarlett Johansson out of uh, films about trans people that we are suddenly erasing trans representation from the equation. No, I don't think that's the case. Mm. The other, the other thing is though, is that when you take out people who actually have key experiences from Mm. stories about those experiences, you're running the risk that the representation that is being offered is coming from a place of ignorance Mm. and that the possibility that the films that are being made about key issues aren't actually representing those issues well and ultimately doing a disservice when they're intended to do a service. Mm-hmm. And we've all seen movies that, you know, maybe, arguably, we're trying to do the right thing. We're trying to ex- uh, exert a positive image, but then become uh, uh, an example of how not to do things. Like mm-hmm. Viola Davis has expressed regret for being in The Help. Yeah. Because The Help is ultimately structurally... Um, about Emma Stone's character, mm-hmm. and that's not the right way to tell that story. Um, so, it's a complicated issue. It's a very complicated issue. Hmm. Uh, it's also a very simple issue. <laughs> Hire people to play these roles, and instead of trying to bend over backwards to find an excuse to like have have a big star, yeah, yeah, and I get the rationale for it, but on some level. We're, we're defending, like, a, a fundamentally uh, a prejudice, prejudice, system, prejudice yeah. system. You're defending this prejudice system rather than trying to rework the system mm. so that it still works but isn't prejudiced anymore. And I think that's where our focus needs to be right now. Yeah. And in the process of that, there will be some things that get dramatically shifted and changed. That's part of the process. It needs to change. Mm. We want it to change. And in order for it to change, people have to do things differently. Anyway, that's our two cents on it. Um, and again, we are and we're, we're, two, we're, two, two white cis dudes. Yeah. So, and yeah. we're trying to do the absolute best we can. And we're constantly mm. learning. We're constantly trying to better yeah, ourselves. Uh, we're constantly listening to other people. And, yeah, be, you know, we, yeah, we want the world to be a better place. And I care less about the capitalism than I do about the people within uh, the world, basically. I, I, I really hate when uh, casual viewers or even critics start to make excuses for bad creative decisions in films by taking the studio's side. I think uh, there's a difference between that and knowing the studio's side and understanding where they're coming or from. Or un- understanding it, knowing it... Uh, Putting a rationale as to why certain decisions were made, that's one thing. Yeah, I get but, it. But in order to say, oh, well, they made this decision because, well, they need to set up a sequel. No, they don't. That's a decision that's that they the, made. They, they, so they have made a decision to make a sequel, but wouldn't have made it a more compelling story if they set it up in such a way where no sequel is possible. That would have been a much more exciting film, perhaps. But everybody says, no, capitalism, we need sequels, we need these things to be big and expansive. No, we don't. Yeah, it's one we're, option of we're many. We're viewers, and what we, what we need is the best possible movie, right? Yeah, we're not why, financially why not? engaged in this system. Yeah. I don't care if you like a franchise or not. You're not making so, any money off of it. It's better that it be good, I think. So making the argument, well, the studio needs to make money. Why do you care what studio makes money? 
Yeah. <laughs> if you don't what work if, for them, what's the point? What if you get a great film out of it? Yeah. Who cares how successful? And honestly, it is? and some people have argued like it's the studio's job to make money. No, it's not. It's the mm. studio's job to make films mm. and TV shows or whatever. But like, it's the studio's job to make art. That will then make money because it's good enough to warrant people paying for it. <laughs> Ergo, it's that middle step mm. that is really, really important because you can... Here's the thing. You never know what's going to make money. Mm. You can make something that seems like a slam dunk and it'll bomb. You can make something that seems like a huge risk and it'll be the most important movie ever made. What happened to Star Wars? Mm. You just don't know. It behooves you to make the best film. Because at the end of the day, after people stop talking about the box office reports, the film is all that's left. Mm. And if the film ends up being part of a legacy of denying representation to people who actually really are underrepresented, or even just mildly underrepresented, if, if it's part of that tradition, mm. that's not a good... That, that, I mean, maybe the film is well told in some way, but it's not part of a good tradition here. We can change that. Yeah, yeah. So I think we should. Mm. And, and we're living in a, an era when fans have that power. A lot of the, you know, Scarlett Johansson and Halle Berry left those roles because there was outcry yeah. Yeah. immediately. Yeah. Uh, fans are demanding certain kinds of, like, characters show up in superhero movies. They show up in those superhero and movies. And you know what? That's And you know what? If you want to take the capitalist route, that's capitalism, too. That's mm. people saying, I'm not interested in paying money for this mm. if it's in poor taste. Yeah. And if it, I find it to be in poor taste. If so, that's the case, then that's capitalism is kind of working in that regard, isn't it? So it's I, people I saying, agree, I don't want that. I agree with the spirit of what Stephen Fry said, but I think uh, what is effective... Uh, yeah, in, that's in the a good eyes point. Of, of Stephen Fry, what's, actually is doing what's right. Is what's effective cases, yeah. making sure that any movie just gets out there, or is what's effective yeah. making sure that we make movies the right way, that the people in the industry who actually need more representation get the representation, and that the movies that do come out are better representative of the people whose stories they're trying to tell. Mm. I would argue that that's more effective than just hoping that people who will have to like come in from the outside and not really know what they're talking about might get it right this time. Mm. Yeah. 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 I com completely agree. Okay. Uh, let's do, so we have time for one more letter. Sure. We'll do one more letter. Uh, let's see. Do we have here. a wacky one? What's um, your favorite socks? <laughs> Don't ever ask us <laughs> about end, socks. And on sort of a, a, sort of a light note. Um, you know what? I think I do. I think I saw one earlier. Um, here's, here's a fun one. Okay. Here's one from Thomas. Not Tomas, but Thomas. Uh, hello, Thomas. Uh, hello, Bibs and Rock Beats Scissors. Um, Cute. I like that one. I have a simple question, and I hope it'll give you, give you something to think about. I was wondering what year of your life has been the best. <laughs> oh, my God. Considering all the things, I was curious about what you consider your happiest extended amount of time so far. For oh, me, it wow. would be 1997. I was in third grade. <laughs> and at that time, <laughs> I got my Nintendo 64. <laughs> Pokemon came out in America. And we got Tomorrow Never Dies, Austin Powers, and Men in Black. For a seven-year-old, I couldn't have imagined a better year. Thanks for taking my question. I hope this is a unique question for you. Sincerely, Thomas Simpson. That's a fun question. I'm actually going to... I think that this is a great question. This is a fun question. It's a nice question because mm. too often, I think a lot of us who have like anxiety or who are neurotic look back at our own past and cringe a little. Mm. Um, so it's good to look back and think positively. However, I'm going to answer this question in two ways. Because I think there are two answers to this. There's the answer of when you were very young and had fewer responsibilities mm. and your, you know, your life was a little simpler in some ways. 
Uh, and then there's when you're an adult. And your life is a bit more complicated. And I find that the happiness that comes from having a good year as an adult is a little different than the happiness that comes from being like a child or in high school. Mm. So there's that. I would argue that my best year when I was young was probably 1999. 99. Okay. 99. Very, very specifically. I was, uh, uh, I was in my last year of high school for the most part. Mm. Um, I was feeling like I knew my path, like I knew where I wanted to go. I ended up veering from that, but not too far. I'm still mm. in the art form that I wanted to be in in some regard. Um, I uh, I was, like, very, like, healthy. You know, I felt very, you know, fit and strong and young and, and powerful. And, and uh, it was 1999, one of the best years for cinema ever. I would go to the <laughs> movies every single weekend mm. and see something good, oftentimes more than one. Like, I could seriously just throw a dart at, like, the coming attractions thing at, like, a movie theater, and I would hit a future classic. And then they told me to please put your darts away. And I was just like, no, it's 1999. I can do whatever I want. And they're like, okay, it's your best year. <laughs> so it's fine. So yeah. I threw more darts. Oh, boy. Oh, and look at all the best picture nominees. Oh. oh. <laughs> like, like, two the of them were good. The Cider House Rules. Yeah. But the, uh, the uh, Green Mile. Green Mile's okay. American Beauty is aged. It's it's, uh, a, it's aged badly. Six Sense is still really important at the time. Six Sense is still a ripping thriller, right. and the Insider is great. The Insider is good. Those those two are definitely like mm-hmm. I would keep those two nominees. But yeah, the Oscars that year snubbed so many amazing films. Mm-hmm. Like it's ridiculous how many amazing films yeah. got completely overlooked. Um, but uh, in any case, 1999 was a really really good year for me, and then. I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I'm trying I'm to think. Highs and lows in every year. It was probably 2014 or 2015. It gets a little hazy. Hmm. Um, you know, I felt like, you know, I was part of a nice community. I hmm. had found my the person I considered to be my soulmate. Um, hmm. Everything, like our, our money wasn't on fire and the plague wasn't everywhere. And it just seemed pretty good to me. <laughs> I don't know. In the before times, I don't know, man. It gets a little, it gets a little mm. hazy, doesn't it? Um, in 1994, I traveled the world. That's that's, awesome. that's pretty not- notable. Um, yeah. My mom always had a big dream of just leasing the house and going around the world, and lo, she did. Good for her. Yeah, just uh, we're gonna lease the house. Uh, we're all just gonna we're gonna leave on the road for exactly one year, and we're gonna see if we can traverse the entire globe. And they did that. That's cool, man. Uh, I, uh, my, I was 15 at the time, which meant, uh, I have divorced parents, which meant there was this big sort of custody rigmarole as to what I was going to do. So my dad actually held me back for six of those months and insisted yeah. I go to school. Like I was going to miss school. That's rational. I, I, it's not I fun, I, but I, I get it. I, I went to a crappy LAUSD school. I didn't miss much. Oh, then I no, you should have gone to the, oh, yeah, no, I learned way much. more in the world. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> I went to Pasadena, yeah, so. like public schools yeah they were not great public schools yeah. I, I had but good then, experiences and i learned but but yeah for it was it wasn't like you know like preparing me to be like a, a rocket scientist it was basically <laughs> just get them out the door get get, get make sure they can pass those yeah. sats but yeah that was that was a pretty formative experience because like i did end up catching up with my family I ended up just living on the road for five or six months and 
<laughs> Luca's playing hockey with his food bowl. Luca again. likes playing air hockey with his food bowl. He's adorable, and we love you, Luca. Yeah, you're the best of us, Luca. So that that was a, a pretty substantive time. You know, going amazing. out going out of state for college was a pretty big one as well. But and you the, missed the Lion King. I, did, I was out of country for the Lion King, and by the time I got back, the the, the wave had died down. You still haven't seen the original Lion King, have you? No, I saw John Favreau's The Lion King, so I've, I got the gist of it. <laughs> I, I missed so two two gigantic blockbusters from '94. What, did, uh, was, what else did you miss? There was the Lion King and there was the Flintstones. Yeah, yeah, which miss. was a we, giant hit at the time. And we ended up seeing the Flintstones I've for seen, a podcast. I've and, caught up with the Flintstones. And you realize you missed nothing. You missed some interesting production design. Yeah, that was yeah. it. <laughs> well, I I went to um, Universal Studios shortly thereafter. Oh, they I saw all the stuff. So they, they had a lot of the Flintstone stuff out still. So yeah. I kind of got the production design anyway. Yeah. Without having to see the movie, I envy you your world travels. That sounds amazing. I still haven't like traveled the world in I any like, meaningful I way. I like to think that spending you know five or six months on the road with your family, just sort of living in hostels and out of your own backpack, uh-huh. far more enriching experience than watching The Lion King. It sounds like a Sundance film, <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Um, so yeah, go, going going around the world at age fifteen is a big one. I want you to make. I want you to write like a screenplay about going around the world, oh. and you call it better than the Lion King. <laughs> like that's just. It's like it's okay. It's a metaphor. It's it's fine, right, Disney? <laughs> Simba, who? <laughs> um. So yeah, I got back and I heard like some songs like "Oh, The Lion King." I, I guess that was another because I was fifteen. I was too hip for cartoon films at that point. <sighs> so it's like I, I probably would have never seen, too hip for cartoons. seen it anyway. But this, this was after I'd already seen like Aladdin six times in the theater. Sure. Because so. we we did that at, when we were younger. Just go to a theater and see a film you'd seen before. Sure, why not? Just for fun. Yeah. Whether or not you loved it, we it had didn't the matter. time. Yeah. Like yeah. Um, and Aladdin was one of those things where I went with a bunch of different different groups of friends each yeah, that, time. That's how and, I saw like Independence off, Day like they, five times. And they always offered to pay my tickets. Like, I'll watch that again for free. Yeah, Why I, not? That's how I saw Independence Day five times. That's how yeah. I saw The Lost World like four times. I didn't even like that movie. <laughs> I, I mean, it's not the worst thing I've ever seen, but it's not good. Like, yeah, it, was, it was a time when you'd repeatedly watch in the theater movies you didn't like. Yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway, so that's, uh, that's, those are our favorite years off the top of our heads mm. anyway, and I'm a little hazy on one of mine. Um, but, um, whether or not you write in, that's a really nice exercise, actually. I encourage everybody listening mm. to take a moment, 30 seconds, a minute, and just think about, like, a year in your life that was just, where everything was really nice. <laughs> just go back there. It's still there. Like the it's whole, all locked the in your head. Year. It, yeah, yeah. In, enjoy it. Like, let's, let's live in the past in a good way for a minute. No. I think it's a that's a nice sort of centering exercise. I've been working on that lately. These sort of centering exercises. Make sure that you're present and not just wrapped in your own head, which I can do because I get like very the same thoughts will just rattle around in there. Yeah. I have no control over them sometimes. And it just feels like, ah, I'm tired of thinking and worrying about this. And then I'm just like, deep breaths. Those thoughts are Look, stale. Like just think about various like just yeah. objects that are in the room. Think about things that I'm grateful for. Think you'd be and I very, feel present. I think you'd be a very good Buddhist. Probably would, yeah. probably would. I I, I do respect that uh, yeah. philosophy a lot. Yeah. Um. Okay, so that's a critically claimed. Uh, we've got mail podcast. Thank you everybody for writing in. Uh, again, you can email us letters at critically That is letters at critically We might read your email on a future episode of yeah. We've Got Mail. That's how it works. Isn't that fun? <laughs> um. We'll be back next week with more of this. Uh, also, if you want more of our uh, podcast, we do have some guest spots this week we want to mention. Uh, so uh, we were just on a show, Whitney and I were both on a show called Screen Drafts, two words, 
where they have uh, various film critics and film aficionados uh, come in to put together the ultimate best of list. But we're not allowed to work together. We're kind of fighting for it. We're fighting for placements <laughs> on the list. Um, so I, it's the top seven. I got to pick four. Whitney got to pick three, but he got the number one spot. Mm. It was very intense. <laughs> it was very intense and an odd bit of list. An odd list. I actually like the list that we ended up with. There's uh, like one omission that really ticks me off. But mm. other than that, it's a fun list. And I kind of stand by it. Uh, our list was the best animals attack movies. Mm. So these are movies about people being attacked by animals. The only big rule was it can't be like sci-fi fantasy stuff. So it can't be like a 50-foot like alligator. No, no Godzillas, no dinosaurs. Yeah. yeah. No cyborgs. Like just it's got to be vaguely plausible in its mm. execution at least even if the rationale might be vague or whatever. So mm. Because that was really, really fun. I'm also on a a new podcast hosted by Alonzo Duralde, or co-hosted by Alonzo Duralde, rather, Mm. uh, called A Film and a Movie. And this is a great idea, by the way. Oh, I love it. I love it. Uh, It's uh, it's hosted by Alonzo Duralde and Grumpy Dan uh, from the Hallmark (laughs) Podcast. Uh, That's what he's known as on Twitter. Grumpy Dan. Uh, He's from the podcast uh, Deck the Hallmark. Uh, It's um, um, He's like Grumpy Cat. But he's Dan. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, yeah, the whole thing is they take a relatively recent popular movie, something Mm -hmm. that, you know, made money or was in the Oscars or something people know about now, and they find an older movie that is sort of the uh, ancestor of it, like directly, Mm. and they make the connective tissue. And this is something we kind of did when we were doing the two-shot. It was the general idea, but we were more loose with it. We were just basically looking for a good double feature. They're looking at trying to sort of create like a swath of film history. So like our double features could have come out the same year, Mm. and it would have been fine. Uh, They're looking for a classic film, or at least a significantly older film, and a contemporary film that almost everybody in the audience will be familiar with. Mm. And the film that I, I went on this show, and the films that I... Uh, uh, I gave them some suggestions, and the ones that they went with was we did Batman Begins and the original silent 1920 version of The Mark of Zorro, <laughs> which is, in many respects, the progenitor of every superhero movie you've ever seen. The idea of a costume vigilante predates Zorro, but Zorro was the one that really made it pop. Okay. And uh, was a significant reason why. In fact, if you look back at the original comic book, Zorro was the movie that Batman saw the night his parents died. And the idea of Zorro actually really informed how Batman works as a character. And mm. even though, ironically, uh, uh, Christopher Nolan and uh, David Goyer removed Zorro, specifically the reference uh-huh. from Batman Begins, Batman Begins actually incorporates more ideas from Zorro than any other Batman movie. Like, uh, yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah, like the whole idea of playing Bruce Wayne not just as an alter ego who's just like some generic rich guy, but actually as this like completely unlikable rich a-hole mm. who couldn't possibly be Batman because he's so selfish and terrible. That's Zorro. Zorro did that first. Like that was well, a that's, thing. That's also Scarlet Pimpernel. But the I... difference with the Scarlet Pimpernel. Okay. And I we I'm talked sure about you this. Talked about this. We yeah. did. The difference with the Scarlet Pimpernel is that Zorro was actually fighting for the oppressed. He was actually fighting a corrupt system and trying to change it. Mm-hmm. Scarlet Pimpernel was trying to save the aristocracy from the French Revolution. Well, that's true. So he's actually, <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call him a villain per se, but he's not like this sort of, mm. he's not the, the do-gooder that we would, he, we couldn't make that movie today. No. I think, for the very first time. I you, think it would be weird. You could, but it would be like an ironic sort of thing. Yeah, it would be, it'd be weird, mm. right? So 
Yeah, Zoro was the like the one who like stood up for the the little guy. Yeah. And yeah, anyway, it's really interesting and for some reason people don't talk enough about Zoro when they talk about the great superhero movies. Mm. And that's a shame. So we got to talk a lot about Zoro oh, and going, Silent going Cinema. Back to 97. What the Mask of Zoro? The Mask of Zorro came out in 97. That's true, but for whatever reason, that's I still don't see that on a lot of lists of the best superhero yeah, movies. But I don't know why Zorro our, was in Our listener shows 97 as the best year of their lives. Hey, that's true. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't little, make that, was, that, that was the tie I was I did make that there. connection, okay. and that movie that movie is awesome. I love that movie. So, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so it's a great conversation, and I hope you check that out. Um, so thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody who wrote in in particular. Thank you uh, especially to all of our patrons. Patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, if you contribute to our Patreon, you get to do things like listen to exclusive podcasts, uh, vote for future episodes. Uh, amongst our exclusive podcasts, are, we got stuff about Star Trek, uh, uh, Disney, uh, the Oscars, Firefly, tons of stuff. Mm. Um, and... Uh, and it's neat. And, uh, yeah. And, of course, we're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And, um, is that everything? That's everything for now. Okay, then sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. 